welcome to another episode of the Black Dog Cast. Now, this one's been a long time coming, and I've wanted to get this guest on the podcast for a while. In this episode, we're actually talking to my psychiatric nurse practitioner, Cecilia Howard, about the experience that I've had taking a couple of different psychiatric medications. Now, the reason that I wanted to get Cecilia on the podcast is because I've had a very positive experience in working with her and taking a couple of different medications. But more than that, I think she has a pretty unique and very thorough approach to the process of prescribing medications that I think can be beneficial to anybody that that may be thinking about going down this route. So we talk in detail about her approach, how she works with patients. We talk a lot specifically about my experience and just really using that as a case study. I should caveat this with obviously saying that, you know, I'm not a doctor, she is, um, she's my doctor. We talk a lot specifically about my case. So, you know, take what you will from that and hopefully learn from it. But if you are going down this route of seeking help with medication for a mental health issue, then obviously you need to consult your own doctor with that. So yeah, let's, um, let's get to the podcast and hear from Cecilia. Okay, so Cecilia, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for having me. So you are you're you're with us from uh, my old hood in Ashland, Oregon, just around the corner from where I used to live. Um, why don't you explain a little bit about kind of what you do and what your path was to get to where you are today? Oh, <laughs> well, um, so I'm I'm a nurse. First and foremost, to probably to the core of my being, I've been a nurse for almost 40 years now. And um, I worked in ICU and hospice and developed chronic disease programs to include pain management. Um, because working in hospice, I was always really good at analyzing a situation and kind of coming up with a medication cocktail that would manage all the complex symptoms of my patients. And um, so I was going to have a specialty in pain management. Mm -hmm. And um, both of my sons um, have schizoaffective disorder. and My youngest son has autism as well. They're 39 and 40 now, but they were in the throes of, you know, they had been being, both of them had their illnesses show up for about 10 years. And I noticed that my kids didn't get good care. Mm-hmm. that people did not pay attention to um, side effects or they just really didn't take the complaints and the issues seriously and they didn't think through a complex system, I guess, is how what I think of it as. Like when you manage pain and nausea, it's a complex system. Mm-hmm. And so um, I found that they didn't do that with mental health. They still don't do it with pain management much either, unless you go to a... A, a good specialist. So yeah. I thought, oh, I could do that. I could be a psychiatric nurse practitioner and take a part of the, I guess I'm going to say take a piece of the problem um, because I've always believed that if you're not part of the solution, you're part of the problem. Mm-hmm. And so I decided that I would do um, psychiatric nurse practitioner yeah. um, program and that's how I got to where I am. Now. Can you explain, because I guess a, a nurse practitioner was a new term that, that I came across when I came to the United States, because we don't mm-hmm. have it in England. And I'm right, it sort of sits in between a, a doctor and a nurse. Is that right? Yes, it's well, I guess maybe weeks. I'll have to be careful in case there's any psychiatric nurse practitioners listening, because um, it could be a sensitive issue. I mean, mm-hmm. it is, we don't sit between anyone. Um, I guess I meant let me let me let me let me let me caveat that I mean in terms uh-huh. of the sort of um, training and um, seniority maybe does does that make sense Yeah yeah and that's what I mean I mean nurses okay. are really an independent profession from the development mm-hmm. and we used to work you know I mean in, in hospitals a registered nurse works under the direction of a doctor um, so in that way. You know, there there's a hierarchy in that kind mm-hmm. of a system. But nurses, the focus for a nurse is com- is really significantly different than a doctor. And in some states in the United States, nurse practitioners can work independently. And in um, maybe about half the states, they can work. Um, they have to work under a doctor or train under a doctor for a certain period of time. Mm-hmm. Um, 
now nursing has a doctorate degree requirement. Um, whereas when I went back to school, which was kind of helped me to think of this as a destiny thing, it was the last term of the master's degree uh, requirements. So and then mm-hmm. they were going to move to a doctorate when I um, had the opportunity to go back to school. Yeah. So um, so now it's, they're both required a doctorate and um, they're really kind of different, complete, completely at this point in practice, they're, com- they're different. Yeah. I guess. Yeah. And Not to be defensive, but I mean, just to give honor to, to nursing and not to be at all offensive. Um, yeah. Yeah. No. No. I know. I, I know. I get it, and that's that's why I asked the question because I think it yeah. is a little bit different in, in in different countries, and I and think, different states too. Right. Yeah. Um, so I guess a large part of what you do is obviously working with 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 patients and prescribing various psychiatric medicines. Just to get a sense of that landscape, you're one of um, a number of different practitioners that can prescribe these types of medications that's right and right. and those the the other ones are sort of primary care physicians and psychiatrists yes yeah i was trying to think pas can too and i think uh physicians assistants to yeah. complicate the you know more are now independent practitioners they used to yeah. have to work under the direction of a doctor now they're independent themselves yep. so they also can prescribe medication and, and and the way that you work is also in an independent fashion right you 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 work for yourself and you work independently and you can prescribe medication independently you don't need to work with a doctor for example right right okay got yes. it just just wanted to clear that up because yeah. it it does vary a lot by country and by state um so I guess what I wanted to talk about today is obviously to use my own experience, and I, I guess I should I should point out right from the very beginning that I am one of your patients, <laughs> um, and I've enjoyed very much working with you, um, and and I've wanted to get you on the podcast for a while to really um, use my own experience and talk through my own experience with you to sort of showcase what you do and how you work, because I think it's really important that people understand this whole space in more detail. Um, I also feel, I, I feel very fortunate that I came across you and, and, and started working with you because f- from my perspective, it seems like you have quite a different approach to some um, uh, providers who, who prescribe these sorts of medicine. Um, and so that's, I guess, yeah, that's, that's what I want to dig into. And, and I suppose I first came to you because, you know, I was, this just must have been, I don't know, five or six years ago, um, quite soon after I first moved to Ashland. And I'd been going through, you know, my own battles with depression and it and it had been persistent and it wasn't getting any better. And it was actually my wife Gretchen that found you and you were a block from from where we used to live uh, on, on B Street in Ashland. Um, and so I feel there was an element of sort of serendipity in finding you so close by. And then, um, you know, we started working together. Um, and I, I guess the thing that came across when we first started working is that you don't just write a prescription out, first of all, for, for, uh, for a psychiatric medicine. And we did a lot of work on, you know, using various vitamin supplements. And can you just talk a little bit about how you approach when you work with a patient, first of all, and those, those factors that you consider before you just go down the route of, of writing somebody a prescription for a drug? So, um, well, I mean, first thing I try to do is do a um, evidence-based assessment. So, you know, when you came in, you'll probably remember the big packet of paperwork <laughs> that you had. Mm-hmm. Um, and I try to, so I do that and I consider whether or not, I, you know, what the person might be struggling with. And then um, I... Um, also assess, part of that assessment is how does this person feel about medications? Have they tried supplements and nutrition in the past? What's their lifestyle like as far as exercise, what they do? Um, like I just, you have, I weigh all of those considerations and, um, and how impactful is this in their lives? Like, are they in crisis or are they just, um, 
Are they not in crisis, but have been? I mean, all of those kinds of things. And so, so I kind of weigh that to decide whether or not to recommend um, what to recommend to the person, or if I should just um, prescribe a medication for someone. Mm-hmm. And um, so let's let's talk about kind of you know when I first came to see you, and I remember you um, you asked me an awful lot of questions. We talked a lot about kind of. Um, you know, my lifestyle. And I remember you asked a lot about kind of, you know, what it was like when I got depressed and sort of what the symptoms were. And from that, you're, you're able to kind of, um, you're able to glean quite a lot of information as far as what's going on with somebody's brain chemistry, right? Maybe you can talk a little yeah. bit about that and the sort of things that you can, that you can spot um, that are related to different neurotransmitters and, and, and that sort of thing. They're sometimes two different things. Well, they are different things, obviously. So the first of all, I think that one of the things I tend to do is ask a lot of questions. And one of them I commonly ask people is kind of to get a sense of what that depression looks like. Like, what is it? How does it manifest in their lives? You know, some people get depressed and they get anxious and reactive. Some people get depressed and they can't get up. They kind of stay in bed. Sometimes people have just have constant depression since childhood. Sometimes depression cyclic. Um, sometimes people feel depressed because they feel anxious. So they feel too anxious to do the things they need to fulfill their lives. And so mm-hmm. then they start, you know, or function at work. So then they get depressed about that. So I really try to get a sense of what that depression looks like. Um, because that really gives you a lot of hints about what might be going on. Mm-hmm. And then I, you know, I, I remembered a, a specific example with with me. I think there was some there was oh, some no. things related to how I um, what's the word how, how I resorted to drinking when I got depressed. And I remember there was there was something in there where you were able to to sort of um, point to a particular neurotransmitter or, 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 or something that was going on with the brain chemistry, right? Do you remember that? There are, you know, different neurotransmitters and the maybe the lack of function of them for whatever reason, supply or the pathway um, have different kinds of expressions. So one of the things that can drive um, depression, particularly, um, I'm going to say like uh, psych- cyclothymia, bipolar 2, depression kind of experiences is glutamate. Mm-hmm. And glutamate is an excitatory neurotransmitter. It's kind of a, it's a really important neurotransmitter that we're, you know, it's really been re- relatively new over the past, I don't know, several years of really looking at it and trying to understand how do we ma- uh, modulate this neurotransmitter. So it's a neuroexcitatory one that just can kind of get the brain, I want to say, going in whatever way that that brain's designed to go. So it just seems to activate different processes. If the person tends to have psychosis, it might, you know, excessive glutamate or excessive responsiveness to it could trigger psychosis or could be mood swings or it could be depression or panic attacks. So glutamate's kind of involved in all of those things. And glutamate and GABA are on... Um, a seesaw. So when glutamate's up, GABA, the calming neurotransmitter, is down. And when GABA's up, glutamate goes down. So people who tend to be sensitive maybe to glutamate um, in varying degrees will respond to depression or worry or um, stress by wanting to drink because Mm -hmm. drinking brings the glutamate down and the GABA up. So it's kind of a... um, that's you know what I was looking at and in treating um, someone that you think might have bipolar two disorder um, or soft bipolar as some people like to call it um, is lamotrigine and lamotrigine is a seizure drug. Well, glutamate is implicated in seizures too. It's the brain you know kind of neuroexcitatory and so it you know when someone has cyclic depressions and they're kind of unusual depressions in the sense that they might be you know they're not crying all the time but they just can't get going or they just want to withdraw but they're not necessarily sad i mean all of these um they don't quite feel like i guess feel like is a you know kind of a 
abstract term, but they don't seem like someone who has just typical depression. Um, it's more cyclic and you know, glutamate sensitivity would go along with why I might think someone might do better with like a lamotrigine, you know, a mild seizure drug that is used to help some types of depression as opposed to an antidepressant. Yeah. And um, well, before we get to sort of, um, you know, drugs like lamotrigine and others, um, you, you also try a bunch of different you know, vitamin supplements as well. Mm -hmm. And I remember we, yeah. we did that first of all. Um, right. can you, can you talk right. a little bit about that? Cause uh, I, it seems to me that's quite an unusual approach. Is, mm -hmm. is that right? Well, it, you know, it can be, um, there's a, now a specialty in psychiatry, which I am not. So I'm always careful about recommending, um, supplements and try to make sure that what I might be recommending is a nutritional supplement and not an herb and mm -hmm. that it's um, something that a standard psychiatrist might order. And so um, one of the things that lowers glutamate is N-acetylcysteine, NAC. Mm -hmm. And yep. NAC is a supplement actually that just got um, not taken off the market, but um, the FDA has indicated that they're um, somehow going to restrict the use of it as just a supplement. And so um, it's now has a lot of kind of struggle, I guess I want to say. But N-acetylcysteine reduces glutamate and it's probably one of the most commonly prescribed supplements in psychiatry yeah. um, because it really can kind of reduce glutamate and kind of help uh, that responsiveness to excessive glutamate. But it there's so much about the glutamate receptors that we don't know, you know, they're also associated with memory. So, mm -hmm. I mean, it's, yeah. So I usually start to look at, you know, I think about NAC in Europe, they use a couple of different supplements for depression. One of those is SAMe and SAMe is um, a methyl donor. It's a kind of a helps, it's a kind of a coenzyme and they use it in France. They started using it in France for depression. Mm -hmm. So sometimes I try to see, oh, do I, do I think this person might benefit from SAMe or um, in the, Europe, they use L-tryptophan, which yep. is the amino acid that helps your, um, that your brain takes. I mean, it's an essential amino acid and it makes serotonin and melatonin. Mm -hmm. And so, so I tried it and they treat, um, bipolar disorder also with it, not bipolar one, mm -hmm. but bipolar two disorder type symptoms with L-tryptophan. And then what, makes, what know, about, um, what about folates? Cause that was another one that, 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 um, we tried for quite a long time. Can you, can you sort of speak mm -hmm. to what that does? So, so usually what I do, um, and I know this is some, a little unusual too, but not hopefully too unusual. And, um, is that I offer people genetic testing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, 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 want, I want to come to that for sure because that's, that's, mm -hmm. that's, that's a big one. Um, and so, you know, I like to, especially if I have someone where it's just not clear and usually by the time, usually when people come to me, they've gone to other people, some, mm -hmm. lots of times not. Um, but, you know, if I'm not really kind of clear or that person need you know, could use also some um, increased belief. Um, I like to do, um, to use genomide testing because it tells me a number of things. It looks at one of the glutamate receptors, for example, and tells me whether the person is hyper-responsive to that glutamate receptor. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, even though there are multiple types of glutamate receptors, I can, um, as, um, as, as I said, as you know, like a preponderance of the evidence, it kind of adds more to that, that uh, pot in my mind of what might be helpful for a person. And it yeah. also helps people understand how their brain might work. Um, and I say might because, you know, it's still a new science and information is still, you know, changes about it. And that's why it's um, some doctors don't like to use it because it's it's not mainstream because they're going to like, Oh, well, the evidence isn't quite there. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not, I'm personally not looking for litmus paper test. I'm yeah. trying to see, Oh, does that person lean towards this way? Do they have um, other things? So methylated folic acid is one of the things they look at on the genetic test. Um, and so, and 
it's often recommended if you um, if someone doesn't respond or their depression doesn't respond to the treatments that you consider that they might have a folate methylation problem. Mm-hmm. And so um, they can recommend supplementing or, and I just like to test for it because the supplements aren't cheap and you're asking people to invest. And I think, you know, it's just helpful along with all the other information to know, can that person methylate folic acid? Yeah. Um, right. So this DNA test, um, I, anybody I speak to about it, I, you know, most people are totally surprised and they've never heard of it. And, and it's kind of, I don't know, it's the thing I bang on about with a lot of people because I think it's really important for people to know about it. Um, just to explain simply what it does and, and how you use it. So the I do use a couple of different genetic tests, and the one I prefer is uh, Genomind. Mm-hmm. And they look at 15 different neurotransmitters. And then they look at, jeez, um, it's grown now. I haven't counted them in a long time. Maybe 10 different liver enzyme and drug metabolism processes to see how does that person metabolize drugs using that pathway. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, the mental health markers kind of look at how the person might use serotonin, how they use, how they're kind of built to use um, dopamine, which is really important to me. And it's been a well-researched area in ADHD, whether or not people break dopamine down fast or slow, um, whether they can methylate folic acid. Um, so, and um, geez, it looks at, what else does it look at? The, like I said, the glutamate receptor. It looks at two of the electrical channels, the calcium and the sodium mm-hmm. ion channels, um, which, you know, when you, you look at them, for example, the sodium ion channel is associated with a number of disorders um, and so is the calcium ion channel. I mean, there are hundreds of pieces of genes that come together and life experiences to create different disorders. Um, but when they kind of looked at what should we test for, they looked at the sodium and the calcium ion channel seemed to consistently show up in mental health disorders. So they tested for them. And the electrical channels can be associated with um, mood swings, you know, um, the sodium ion channels associated with seizures. Um, more people with aut- in the autism spectrum have the sodium ion channel mutations. Calcium ion channels are associated with um, some social anxiety to the point of paranoia mm-hmm. and um, mood swings, like in bipolar two disorder. Lamotrigine regulates both both the sodium and the calcium ion channels. So I kind of look at all of those things and put it together with the evidence-based tools that I have people complete. And I try to make, you know, combined with what they want, the best plan of a place to start. Um, Also, whether a person can metabolize different drugs or not is really important. You know, they might've tried two antidepressants before, but they might use a liver enzyme that, that doesn't work well for them. And so then that also helps you kind of tease out, well, this might be a really, we might have a better shot at this antidepressant working because they can actually metabolize it and use it. Yeah. I mean, I, I remember what, what jumped out at, at mine was, um, you know, the DNA test obviously gives you this, this sort of predictor of how you would respond to various psychiatric drugs, right? And in my case, um, the most common... Um, uh, what's the word? The, the most common type of antidepressant, which is an SSRI, had a massive cross in the box, which said that they would not only not work, but they might have an adverse effect. And I was just left thinking, well, you know, all these people out there are just going to their primary care physician and probably getting prescribed an SSRI without much thought. And it might actually make their symptoms worse, right? Right. Yeah. And also, you know, that I mean, people go to their primary care physician and get an antidepressant, which might make the situation worse. Yeah. Yeah. So what, um, you know, I guess not, not taking my case in isolation because, you know, I don't know, maybe mm-hmm. I just got lucky. And, and for me, the, the results that came out on that 
on that test were, were very accurate. Am I right in thinking you use this test with the majority of your patients, right? Uh, yeah, I would say a majority. And, and off the top of your head, sort of, um, how many times does it get it right? Uh, pretty most of the time, I guess. I feel like it, it, helps, it helps explain it's mm-hmm. not necessarily right. Like I know that they make a, um, they'll say, well, this antidepressant, these would might work for this person or this might work for this person. What the gene test doesn't do is put them all together. Right. So, so uh, it put them all together really, as in, as in if somebody needs a, let's call it a cocktail of several psychiatric drugs. Or even the pathways. So like they, they'll look at antidepressants completely separate than the electrical channels. There's mm-hmm. nothing that brings all of it together to help you kind of get a sense of the person. Yeah. You know? And so I think, um, so in that way, it, there's not a get it right or get it wrong, but I've not ever really, I can't think of any person off the top of my head that when we when we looked at the whole of the gene test that they didn't go, yeah, wow, that really helps me understand yeah. what may have been going on. Um, sometimes I get it completely wrong. Like if I try not to do a test because a person doesn't want to, and I'm like, oh, it seems to me like you're somebody who breaks dopamine down slow because, you know, they got these kind of, some kind of traits, you know, mm-hmm. and, and then it'll turn out that they break it down fast. Mm-hmm. And I'll be like, wow, I got that wrong, you know? So in that way, the gene test kind of helps direct me, but um, yeah. Do do you have a sense for how widely used um, these tests are and how many practitioners who are prescribing these meds are are using them? So I, I think like when I think about my colleagues and I don't really kind of hang out with a lot of them just simply because of time and mm-hmm. availability for all of us because a lot of us work independent. Um, a lot of people I talk to use them, but they don't really think about them. They don't really think about the different neurotransmitters and pathways and what's that saying. They more do, do their assessment and create their own ideas and then look at the gene test almost as that litmus paper. Oh, they can't, they shouldn't have an SSRI. I'll give them a different one, mm-hmm. a different antidepressant. I'm, I don't know, kind of a geek, I guess. I think, <laughs> you know, my, my passion is trying to, to, you know, kind of tease out what might be the best combination for a patient. And I've talked to a number of clinicians who they just go, people just don't think about things like as much as you do. <laughs> yeah. So in that way, I really do try to, you know, I, I try to be the change that I'd like to see, you know, because mental health medications really can rock people's worlds. It can change their lives and make their lives better. And mm-hmm. it could also cause a lot of problems for them. And so I take trying to find the right combination really seriously. Yeah. Um, I guess, so just going back a stage, when, um, what's the advice to somebody who, who thinks that they might need to talk to somebody like you and, and at what stage should somebody or their, you know, their, their family, um, you know, think about them seeing, a, um, uh, somebody that prescribes medicine? I think that, you know, you know, there's a criteria in the DSM that's in almost all the diagnoses. And is it is the symptoms causing um, harm to their lives, their interpersonal relationships, their work? Um, so at that point, when things are impacting your life, you should definitely um, seek help. Mm-hmm. And um, and the younger the person is, not like younger, like 13, 14, I think so many times we just jump to pathologize um, normal life experiences. Like, for example, I mean, I'll give a, a blatant one. You know, people will come in and go, I'm, I'm still crying. I'm, I'm still I'm more depressed. And, and um, my, I had put my dog of 10 years down last week and I'm still crying. And I look at them and I think you should still be crying. This doesn't have anything to do with Mm-hmm. Your medications. It has to do with life. So I think in young people, I struggle with that. And that's why I do adults only, right. um, especially in adolescents, you know, it's so rocky, but there are some signs that a young person can 
um, be developing something like schizophrenia or bipolar disorder and really could you can use um, as, assessment and evaluation. And I think that that's a point um, where at least the parents should seek professional help to discuss the situation with their child, not, not always necessarily dragging them into it but initially, you know, every case is individual. But I think when it's impacting your life and you've, you know, we all know the wellness thing, the wellness habits that help sustain mood, but all lots of us don't take them seriously. And, you know, well, we, we, ourselves- we particularly don't take them seriously when we're experiencing a mental health issue. Right, right, both, both of them. And so when you're not able to sustain those things, you know, or no interest, you know, um, you know, I was talking to my son about depression and, and I said, honey, you know, you seem really very depressed to me. And he goes, I'm not depressed. And then we were up doing something and he's like, you know, I just am not interested in anything. Mm-hmm. I, nothing that I used to think that I really loved, I don't love anymore. And he saw that as a problem of not loving. And I said, I mean, the f- symptom, first symptom of depression is lack of interest or pleasure in doing things that you would yeah. typically find enjoyable. And so um, I think um, when you can't do those things, I think finding someone, and I think if someone, if you go to see someone and they just automatically grab to their prescription pad in 15 minutes, um, I think they're, that that's a warning sign for people. I think. Yeah, get out at, of there. <laughs> right. What is this person? Um, yeah. What What did they What did they ask me? Did they have me complete evidence based tools? Um, because really, we know that as clinicians, we are really not very good at predicting what mood state a person is in. That's yeah. why evidence based tools were developed, <laughs> so that you could actually see in black and white what a person is experiencing and whether they get better. Cause sometimes people come back and go, I'm not any better. And I'll go, gee, wow, you're 40% better in three weeks on this assessment tool mm-hmm. than you were before. But they couldn't and, perceive it. Right. They couldn't perceive yeah. it. So it's really, um, so I think those are things when you go and even when a lot of people offer, you know, initial kind of meet and greet. And I think those are things that, I think are important to be aware of and ask, you know, what does a person use? And um, yeah, I think that's important. And, and what about combining what you do with, with sort of more traditional talk therapy? Um, is, is that something that you always, do you always recommend that patients do both? Do people typically come to you, you know, when they're already seeing a behavioral psychologist or how, like, how, how does that work? It can be the whole gamut. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I do tell, I mean, I try to include some counseling skills that I have, that I feel are important in my mm-hmm. practice, but, you know, you can only do so many things well. And my goal is to do medications well, because there are a lot of different counselors. So I do recommend that people have a counselor, um, probably, geez, 80% of the time. Yeah. Depending on how self-directed, like some people just aren't self-directed, but at, by some point it's usually, I've usually recommended them well, probably 90% of the time. Yeah. Because um, I think it's really important. Right. It's, it's, I mean, they, they form part of a, um, a sort of roster of, it's like a full court press almost of all the things that you can do to, to try and improve your mental health situation, whether it's, you know, drugs, medication, talk therapy, diet, lifestyle, what else? There's there's a whole load of things that you, that you can do and it's good to try them all. Right. Right. And it's good to, to have, if you don't, I'm not necessarily, but trying them all, but really kind of helping someone tease through what might be the best things that you need to focus on. Like for you, you had good lifestyle, mm-hmm. you know, in the sense of you ate, you know, nutrition, exercise, um, meaningful work, or at least working and being engaged in that way. Well, I don't know um, about that. That was, that's, that's always been a problem. <laughs> 
<laughs> my my relationship with work. That's what I mean. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, we're, no. you know, we've. I think I've I've figured that one out. Um, yeah, no, I, I I get it because I would always read sort of you know people would say oh you know exercise is great for for depression. I'm like, well, if you do exercise all the time anyway, you don't really get a lift. You can't go and do more exercise to improve your mental health. Mm-hmm. So, do you think in in you know when you look at a case like mine, does that lead? Um, sort of lead l- direct you towards medication sooner because somebody's already checking off all of those lifestyle um, factors. If they're checking off all of the, you know, a lot of the lifestyle factors and they're still having depression, um, then I I do think about medication and I think about medication in the way that um, sometimes medication is to shore a person up and to kind of reestablish brain patterns and brain pathways mm-hmm. that have become m- malfunctioning and as much as possible, shifting them to a healthier place that the person can then start doing those wellness things that they, yeah. they haven't done or explore what else. Like, is it perception that I have and I need to, to work on my perception about experiences? And so, you know, medication sometimes supports someone so that they can do the work so that mm-hmm. eventually as they incorporate those habits that they can um, go off the medications. I mean, really the recommendation for initial antidepressant use is to use an antidepressant for a year. Mm-hmm. And then at the end of the year, the brain is supposed to be, a, not supposed to be in in the sense of if it doesn't, it's not good, but it's then more probable that the brain can take the pathways that are healthy and keep reproducing them, especially and if the person has the habit and the lifestyle changes. Right. I, I was going to say that, especially if during that time when somebody's taking an antidepressant, they've done some work in therapy and other things and mm-hmm. the sort of the, the drug has kind of lifted them out of the hole so that they can work on these things. Um, I guess the question I have then is sort of uh, how like how common is it that somebody is on a drug for a period of time and then comes off of it versus, you know, the mood stabilizer that, that I take is sort of, for me, it's a bit more of a long-term um, approach, right? Um, I guess everybody's case is different, right? Right. Everyone's case is, <clears throat> is different. And, you know, you really kind of weigh a number weigh so many things in making that decision. But for mm-hmm. example, Lamotrigine, which is the mood stabilizer, I mean, one of the things we've talked about is, oh, well, maybe maybe that wasn't the right first place to start. Maybe mm-hmm. it was for some reasons, but maybe it wasn't. And so I, then personally, I think it, personally, I think it was. <laughs> mm-hmm. Just just to, to clarify, I mean, I think, mm-hmm. um, you know, the the... the the immediate difference that I noticed, and and this was this was the first drug that that you prescribed me, right? So mm-hmm. Lamotrigine right. is a mood stabilizer that's given to to what to people that have bipolar and bipolar two, right? Yes. Um, and and I noticed pretty much an immediate um, positive impact. It made me um, the biggest thing I noticed was was productivity. So I was able to just to be as productive as I wanted, expected to be, and I could get things done, and that made me feel better. It didn't make me feel better per se. It made it made me more functional. Um, and then the other really important thing is that I didn't have any. I've had zero side effects on it. So I've had a I've had an extremely positive experience, and you know I still take it now at a lower lower dose. And we've obviously talked about what the process looks like to come off of it. Um, and, and maybe that, you know, this is a good time to talk about kind of the process that people go through um, to come off of a drug because it's really important to do it right. And maybe you can talk to that in a minute. But, um, you know, recently uh, we moved across country. Um, it was very stressful. I know before the move, you and I talked about me potentially tapering off the lamotrigine. And then during the move, I was just like, this is not the right time. You know, there's there's too much going on. This is, this is stressful. I've got a little bit depressed, you know, there's uncertainty on the job front. There's an element of picking your moment to, to come off. Right. Right. Yes. 
Very, very much so. I mean, I think all of those things. I mean, I was really glad to hear that you didn't just um, start weaning down off of it. And I think that's where, you know, I I try to, I, I feel like I try to do a lot of psychoeducation to try and help people understand their brain and how it might work and what the drugs do and how to go off of them. Like, I think education really helps a lot to empower Uh a person to make their decisions like that. Like, uh, this doesn't seem right. I think I'm not going to do this. So so what what other things are important um, when somebody's thinking about coming off of a medication in addition to just, you know, the timing and what's going on in their life at that that particular moment? I think it's important to look at, am I doing everything I can do to sustain positive mood? Am I doing my personal work? Mm-hmm. Am I exercising? Am, you know? And then I think that anytime you change brain chemistry, I like to do it slowly mm-hmm. um, because I find that to be the most successful, just like when you start something. Um, I think it's helpful for people to look on the internet and see what other people's withdrawal experiences are. And of course, not take everything everyone says as Bible, but look for the preponderance of evidence. Oh, a lot of people have withdrawal side effects from this. And um, and so like a lot of the antidepressants, um, particularly the serotonin, norepinephrine antidepressants have a, a lot of withdrawal side effects. So you go down very slowly. And I think it's very helpful for people to see what kind of experiences that that they might have. Like for example, with a serotonin, norepinephrine, antidepressant, they get these often get these uh, brain zaps, kind of this buzzing that can happen in their head. That I think is a, a I think is a result of taking away the norepinephrine, which is kind of more of a, a driven neurotransmitter. It drives signals, and then all of a sudden you take that away, then the brain keeps trying. This is my imagining, and and I haven't really seen any evidence. They don't really know why these withdrawal side effects particularly happen the way they do. But my imagining is that the brain is trying to make that pathway connection and can't really quite do it. And that's that like out of the blue buzzy sensation. Well, mm-hmm. if you expect that, then you don't get freaked out. When it yeah. does happen, then it, you're like, oh my gosh, if, I, if you don't know, then you're thinking something terrible is happening. And that just upsets the apple cart completely. Yeah. And, and I mean, this this can play out over several months, right? The process of, you know, tapering gradually off of a, off of a medication. What what are we talking Two, three months or longer? It just really depends on how long the person's been using the medication, what that medication is. Um, For example, Cymbalta, which is a serotonin, norepinephrine, antidepressant that helps with pain. Um, I, it can take a year or more to get off of it. I mean, I actually don't, I don't particularly when a person comes to me on it and it's not working, I I almost if I know in advance, I just won't even take the patient. <laughs> depends, I have to say. It just depends because it's so hard to get people off of it because mm-hmm. they just all of the blue become super depressed and or super suicidal and you're like, holy cow, you know. Um so there, so it really is individual. People well, notice lamotrigine tapers really. Um, at first, sometimes they don't notice much when they go down from 200 to maybe 150 and maybe down to 100. Mm-hmm. But they can, you know, when they get around 100, really notice it. And then some people really notice it in the beginning. So I think. Yeah. Being I mean, that's, yeah, that's, that's, that's where I'm at. I think we, we, you know, we went from. 200 to 100 and it's been a hundred for a while and you know, still seems to be, still seems to be working. Um, I just had another thought about kind of related to people taking these things long-term. Um, do people get addicted to them? So addiction is a complicated word. Um, addiction, the definition of addiction is actually that you would seek out the drug, even if it caused you harm and Ah. harm to your life. And so there's a difference between addiction and dependence. So dependence means your brain is used to that drug. And it's it's used to that drug independent of the, um, I want to say like a lot of the emotional factors, like your brain is, you know, dependent, like benzodiazepines are an example. After a period of 
a month on a benzodiazepine on a daily basis, your brain's dependent on that. And if you suddenly withdraw it, the person can have a whole range of different side effects. It could be seizures. It could just be anxiety and irritability. Yeah. Um, but their brain, you know, is dependent on it because their brain obviously needed something in the first place. But also, you know, the brain doesn't waste time doing what you're doing for it. You know, for example, melatonin. You take melatonin every night, your brain goes, oh, why should I make melatonin? <laughs> right. Yeah. Really, you know, they got yeah. it. I got other things to make. And it just goes about that, you know? And so um, that's a, the other part about going down on an antidepressant or down on a medication is that your brain has to go, oh, oh yeah, I guess I have to start doing this myself. Yeah. And it has to get on board. So, so then it's fair to say that most people... Are, are dependent on these drugs then if they're, if they're right. not addicted they're they're certainly dependent and does that get hard if somebody is you know they take an antidepressant it makes them feel good like do you run into issues where people don't want to come off of them because because it just mm. makes them feel good um well an antidepressant usually isn't as much usually there are reasons that a person wants to come off and <clears throat> i don't push it one way or the other, but I usually tell people if it's their first antidepressant, we have this talk about that, you know, that they recommend that you take it for a year. Mm -hmm. And, you know, in, in Ashland, people don't like to take drugs. They already have an anti-drug slant for the most part in the culture. Yeah. Um, so, so the, you know, I tell them about it in the beginning, and it really is just a, it depends to me on a number of things. How long has this person been depressed? Have they been depressed their whole lives? Which tells me there's some kind of biochemical process going on that is not going to be fixed by necessarily habits or nutrition. Um, so then, you know, I I look at you know those kinds of things, and I haven't really had someone not want to go off an antidepressant because they usually bring it up. Um, but things like benzodiazepines that also have a euphoria component, same as the struggle with opiates. I mean, some people need pain medication for their whole lives mm -hmm. because they have chronic illnesses that cause pain. And, and pain, for example, can destroy people's lives. They don't want to exercise. They don't, they're mad or miserable. Um, but there's also you know, the addiction component. And so I think it's always looking at that and trying to weigh in what is this person doing? Are they not, you know, um, for example, I don't prescribe chronic benzodiazepines because they're just, they're, they create a lot of dependence, both biological and psychological. What would they and be used for? Anxiety, right. panic attacks. Um, sometimes people need them, but it's not really very often, lots of times it's a way that a person, people often use them to avoid doing work that might help minimize the need. But some people need varying degrees, but they don't need the maximum dose all the time forever. You know what I mean? And that's where you start to say to someone, you know, well, I mean, I usually say at the beginning, like if I'm going to give someone benzodiazepine, this is a short-term solution and these are the things we're going to do to not need it. And here's my uh, here's my boundary for how long I'm willing to do this. Yeah. Um, and this is why. So there is a diff, you know, a stimulants are the other thing. A lot of times people want to use um, stimulants to help them be able just to function in life, to maybe have enough energy to do the things that they want to do or they need to do. And so it's always kind of teasing those things out. It's probably one of the reasons that I, my appointments are all an hour. Mm -hmm. I don't really feel like I can tease out what's really going on with a person in 15 minutes. Is, um, how, how rare is that, that, that your mm. line of work, somebody takes an hour? Not very often. Really? Um, at okay. least that's been my experience. Lots of times appointments are a half an hour. Yeah. When I, when I go to the psychopharmacology conference, the psychiatrists that are teaching are always talking about these 15-minute appointments. And I'm like, I, first of all, I don't need to make that much money. And second of all, I cannot think that fast uh, about a decision that's going to impact your life yeah. for the, you know, for the month after I see you. I mean, some people, you know, can do that, but they usually have a whole team of people that are doing other things. Yeah. Um, I mean, like, but, like 
I come back to what I said at the beginning about feeling very fortunate to have, to have found you because you do have a different approach. Um, and I think a lot of people out there, you know, are, they are in this like 15 minute decision, like quick decision sort of environment, which is just not good, is it? Well, I, I don't think it is. I mean, it's not good for me. I mean, I noticed that when some of the um, psychiatrists will talk about doing these 15-minute appointments, they have had people do you do evidence-based tools before they get into the doctor's office. So okay. they have it right. kind of flash so there's, there's up a, on their There's screen. a bit more to it. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, that, can, make, that makes sense. Yeah. For, for some people, for I want to say like, I guess I want to say for good clinicians, clinicians that are really trying to do a thorough but fast job. But... I don't find that to be the norm. I just, a lot of people do 15 minute appointments and I don't know. I I just really, things come out sometimes in that last 15, 20 minutes. I'm talking to somebody. I'm like, oh, this is what's going on. Not what I thought was going on, (laughs) you know? And so I find that really valuable. Yeah. Um, all right, let's taking a step back and sort of looking at the, you know, the world of mental health right now, sort of, um, you've been doing this a number of years. Um, ha- how are things changing? Are you seeing certain conditions on, you know, on the rise, you know, a mental health conditions just, we hear a lot about them getting worse. What, what does it look like from, from your end of the profession? I think there are, I think they must be get they're getting worse. I don't know that they're getting addressed to the extent that they're getting worse. And I think there are a lot of um, reasons. You know, I I picked up a book in the in the airport um, a couple of years ago called Blame the Brain, mm-hmm. and it talks about really like how we're blaming neurobiology and the brain function for depression or anxiety or, um, but you know, fear. But when you look at the world, you're going like, oh, we don't have a sense of community. Yeah. We don't have a sense of, we don't have good nutrition. Um, we don't have meaningful work. I mean, I think that's why a lot of people haven't gone back to work. They haven't really felt that their work was meaningful and that it, it answered some of their core values. Yeah. And so, you know, I think there's a lot of factors that go into um into the increase, but I definitely, I mean, toxins in our environment, it's really, if you can't methylate folic acid, for example, you don't, you're, you're impaired in your ability to met, to detoxify your system. And yeah. then you're exposed to different things and it really impacts you in a negative way. I don't think people are um, getting, oh, that I don't think there's availability of of mental health care. Like one of the reasons that I don't just up and move to Boulder is, you know, one of the things is that there's really, I don't know who I would hand off my patients to. There would, there really isn't someone, um, there, there really is a shortage of clinicians. And so it's, um, and then there's a shortage of health insurance to pay for clinicians. Um, yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's a very complicated, um, landscape and particularly in the United States with, with private healthcare, it, it, um, mm-hmm. it brings up a, a lot of problems. I, you know, I'd add that it, things are not necessarily that much better in the UK. I think there, you know, there are, there are, there are certain things which are better. I think if you need acute psychiatric care, it, it's available on the NHS and it doesn't cost anything. But, um, my, you know, my limited experience over there is that if you want any sort of decent, um, you know, therapy within a short space of time, you have to pay for it privately. Um, yeah. So it's, I mean, it's, it's a challenge everywhere. And I think it's the, the other thing that makes it tricky in the United States. And you just mentioned, you know, you'd like to move to Boulder. Everything is so state specific, right? That you're not allowed to practice. Or you, you can't see patients outside of Oregon, right? Well, I can if I, for example, for in Colorado, if I um, apply to for get a Colorado licensed. nursing license yeah, and yeah. go through those processes. And, and then, of course, you have to abide by the laws in that state. Like California doesn't allow for independent practice. So I would have to work under a psychiatrist if I were right. going to move there. So kind of weighing all of those things. You know, and it's, yeah, and, and mental health care is hard to... Um, yeah, it's hard to afford. 
if you don't have a job and you're not able to work to be able to, you know, or, yeah. earn that money or have, you know, and, and, and those are, those are frequently the people that need it the most, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yes. I mean, both of my kids feel like they, I mean, they are extremely fortunate um, in that I am working in a field that, first of all, I can help understand what's going on for them, but I can make an income that allows me to provide mental health care for them. Yeah. My son in Boulder, I pay for privately. Yeah. What about sort of future directions of of what's happening in this space? And I guess there's a couple of things which seem to be quite hot right now. There's an awful lot of, um, a lot of stuff with, um, you know, teletherapy and with, with startups that are looking to, you know, provide various mental health services. And then there's the whole, um, area of, of psychedelics. Um, what, what do you make of those and, and what things might look like in the future? I don't know what the first two areas are like. Like, what do you mean by that? Um, I think it's more just, you know, um, companies like BetterHelp and Talkspace. I guess this is more on the behavioral um, um, therapy side. Um, They're sort of, they're getting a lot of press just in terms of offering mental health services over the internet. And then Mm -hmm. there's other companies that are sort of, you know, they're, they're packaging it all up as like a one-stop shop that's easy for people to get behavioral therapy, to get prescribed meds, you know, other forms of, of um, um, tools and content that they can use. Um, my take on it is that I look at these companies and the one thing that they're all trying to do is hire therapists, <laughs> um, which says to me that it's not very scalable because ultimately you still need you still need people to provide these services. Um, and, and there's only so many of those people who are qualified in each state to go around. Right. Right. Or who've gone through the edu- Yeah. Who've gotten licensed to be able to do that. Yeah. No, I think, I mean, one shop, one stop shopping is great. Like if you actually have a therapist, I know there are some clinicians here locally that have a psychiatric nurse practitioner and they have two counselors that they work with and, mm-hmm. You know, there are a number of those programs and I think they can work well. I mean, people are more likely to go to one place to get counseling and they've actually done that with medical help too, like having a medical nurse practitioner or a physician um, in a clinic that has those services so that the person actually attends to their medical conditions as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that they can work well, you know, as far as like video, you know, I, when I first started practicing, I subscribed out of England to a program that had cognitive behavioral therapy for a lot of different disorders that I could prescribe for my patients and they would do it from their own home. And then I could see, through, you know, why, when I went to see them next, I would see the scores of their assessments and the statistics that they that they presented for those types of programs were equal, um, if not really close to equal to um, programs that were provided in person. And you could provide those services to a number of people. Um, mm-hmm. There's a program that I'm just so starting that, up. So, so that was, in your experience, that was scalable somewhat without needing mm-hmm. a person to deliver it. Right, because I could have either, you know, I had two rooms in my office, so a person could actually come in and use my computer and do that therapy while I would be in the other room and be mm-hmm. available for them at the end of the appointment um, if there anything came up that couldn't wait. And so it was a way of being able to provide that service without, one, having to get that training, and two, um, having to do it. And because, you know... Um, yeah, there's, you know, there's only so much of you to go around. There's a program now that I'm um, just signed up for out, out of Australia that does something similar called This Way Up. And it mm-hmm. has a number of different online counseling protocols for different disorders. And so I think, um, I mean, of course, nothing doesn't, nothing works if you don't do it. But for yeah. people who are willing to do it or have someone who can assist them to do it, I think they're very helpful. Yeah. And then um, lastly, what, what about this whole area of psychedelics with, um, you know, psilocybin and ketamine and MDMA assisted therapy? What's, what's your take on all of that? And do you think that those, are, those will become part of your, um, uh, 
your arsenal anytime soon. <laughs> well, I'm not going to be. Ketamine really requires a, um, a like, you have to have a special licensing. Well, for all of them, you do. Um, mm-hmm. At first, um, when ketamine came out, I was leery, and it seems now to be an effective tool for some people. Um, and I think um, psychedelics, you know, at first I was thinking, oh, great, another way to get high. And we're going <laughs> to call that therapy. And um, But, you know, when I actually I have a patient who's involved in that process. And um, and so I started researching because I thought, all right, I can't like just throw it out if I don't really see what's going on. Mm-hmm. Um, and really, there's a quite a bit of evidence for both of them to work in in con- when you work in conjunction with a therapist mm-hmm. um, who, you know, for example, psychedelics, um, you know, help the brain actually build new pathways and kind of bypass, a, you know, an automatic stuck pathway. You can actually kind of recreate a different pathway, but that requires the guidance and help of a therapist while you're using the psychedelic. But there's, you know, there's quite a bit of research going on that's really positive um, out of out of Harvard, for example. I watched a couple of, of uh, panel discussions um, on YouTube out of you know um, off, out of the East Coast, and so I was like, hmm. And then when I went to my psychopharmacology conference um, this year, which is a so many people go to NEI, Stephen mm-hmm. Stahl, and I was I took one of the sessions was on um, psychedelics and different you know different modalities, and I thought for sure it was going to be a don't let your kids do drugs talk, and um, it wasn't. It was really here's the evidence, and there's some positive evidence for therapist assisted use of these drugs, and and NEI doesn't support anything that's not evidence based. I mean these are I hate to call them geeks, but these are geeks from a lot of the major university and teaching hospitals. And I think Stephen Stahl probably came out of England. Yeah, um, there's, um, so, there's, there's definitely yeah, a lot so of... Yeah, there's um, a lot of evidence for them. It, and exactly, yeah, as well. Yeah, there's a lot, of, a lot of academic studies coming out and um, you know, a couple in the UK that I've seen out of Imperial College and King's with, um, uh, I think it's LSD and psilocybin-assisted therapy. Um, do you, do you think, I mean, is that something you'd, if let's say you did want to, to, to work with that, you'd have to go and it's, it's a separate type of training, right? I imagine. Yeah. I'm sure you have to have a certification. You don't have to have a certification to do ketamine, but you do have to have a, a license. Yeah. And, um, but as far as, yeah, the psychedelics, I'm sure. I mean, I think they're still trying to put together how, how are we going to allow use of these? these modalities and in therapy. So, but yeah, I'm sure. And by that point, I'll probably just <laughs> stick to what I'm doing. Um, <laughs> just because well, you know, I don't have that many years left. What, what you, yeah, what, what you, what you do is, is I think it's great. And I think your approach has been wonderful. Um, and I guess that's why I wanted to do this podcast. Cause I think more people need to, need to hear about a positive sort of experience of um of of using psychiatric medications and and to to really understand what the implications are for you know if you do decide you have to go down this um this route right yes um all right is there anything that you think we haven't covered that people should know well, one, I mean, don't expect medications to do it all, which we kind of touched on. Um, we know medications alone aren't, um, you know, aren't as robustly successful as we, you know, we would like or that people think they are. It really requires the kind of the personal work. Mm-hmm. And so I think doing that and really kind of um, thinking about those lifestyle things that lifestyle habits that, you know, aren't just myths, you know, that really are important. So I think, yeah, I think that just not expecting medications to do it all and really kind of then looking to complete the other things so that yeah, you can have for meaningful sure. I mean, life. It's 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 definitely a it's a full court press on a number of um, a number of factors which can influence this and then um, 
run a mile if somebody writes your prescription after 15 minutes, right? Well, listen, let's, um, let's, let's wrap it up there. This has been, it's been fascinating. And, and I, I you know, I've, I've wanted to get you on here for some time because, um, I think it's really important to tell the story. So thanks a lot. Yeah. Thanks. You're welcome. Thanks for doing this. And hopefully it will help someone. I'm sure it will. So that's it for this episode of the Black Dog Cast. I'd just you know, like to thank again Cecilia for coming on and, and sharing her expertise on this subject. I think it's super important. There's obviously still a huge stigma around mental health in general. There's probably more of a stigma, to be honest, in seeking out and taking psychiatric medicine. So I would encourage you to share this podcast, share it with your friends. You never know who might be out there that's going through an issue that this sort of thing might help them. The other thing I would ask, if you have a few minutes, go to iTunes, give us a thumbs up and a rating and a, and a comment. It all helps to share the podcast and get it out to a wider audience and people that may find the content useful. That's it for now. Stay tuned for the next episode.